All right, please be seated. <clears throat> we are now at the sixth commandment in our catechism series, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Last time we were looking at the sixth commandment as well as the time before. Last time we looked at what is the root of murder. And we saw that the root of murder is anger, or we could say hatred as well. In Matthew 5, verses 21 through 22, Jesus says that we are in danger of God's judgment, not only for actually murdering our neighbor, but also for unjust anger. So in other words, we break the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, not only when we actually take another person's life, but also when we're unjustly angry with our brother. God judges us not only for what we do, but also for our thoughts and our attitude of wickedness toward our brother, wickedness that's in our hearts. Where does this leave us? It leaves us in need of of mercy. We can't stand by our own works. If even hatred is, is a violation of the sixth commandment, then we have to have the forgiveness in Jesus Christ and his righteousness imputed to us. We would have every reason to despair if it were not for God's covenant mercy in Christ. Without his promise of forgiveness and transforming grace through Jesus, we would be all headed for destruction in hell. But he has promised that if we trust in him who paid our sins on the cross, then we will be completely forgiven. Also, the Lord will begin to work in us to root out that murder that, 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 that is the root of murder. He'll root it out from our hearts. He'll go right down to the roots in helping us to deal with our sin. Jesus did not come because we were such good people. He, became, he came because we're sinners who need his grace. This week, we're going to look at further implications of the sixth commandment. In short, that when God says you shall not murder, we should understand that he wants us to have high regard for each other's lives. We should avoid things that put our own life or the lives of others at risk. We should instead seek to preserve life. If we value the image of God, which we, are all, we all are, then we will cherish human life and we will seek to maintain it. The catechism questions that relate to the sixth commandment bring this out for us quite clearly. So let's recite them together, the answers to them, questions 68 and 69. Question 68, what is required in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment requireth all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. Question 69, what is forbidden in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment forbiddeth the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tendeth thereunto. Isn't that a good thing to have to think of our children, you know, memorizing these catechism questions and the answers here and, you know, knowing that so many people in our world, they don't know that taking your own life is a violation of the sixth commandment. It lays it out for us in a very helpful way. But if you look at these answers, you can see how they emphasize that the sixth commandment not only forbids murder itself, but also calls us to preserve our own life and the life of others by avoiding anything that tends toward the unjust termination of life. We will be looking at a number of different scripture passages related to this. Already we had our reading from Matthew 25, 31 through 46, where Jesus calls us to minister life-giving support to other people if they're hungry, to give them something to eat, that sort of thing. Now I want to read from Leviticus 19, 26 through 28, where we see that pagan rituals that deface our bodies are forbidden very, very relevant to us today. Please give careful attention to God's holy word. Leviticus 19.26 You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying. You shall not shave around the sides of your head, 
nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo marks, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Here we see in God's word a prohibition against pagan practices that disfigure the body. These practices often arise in cultures that reject God, the true God who made us. See that he speaks of shaving around the sides of your head, disfiguring the edges of your beard, making cuttings in your flesh and tattoo marks. This is just a sample of some of the things that pagans do to disfigure themselves. You may remember in 1 Kings 18, when Elijah was confronting the prophets of Baal and they called on the name of Baal, what did they do? They took lances and knives and cut themselves to, to, um, to, to try to get Baal to hear them. Apparently that was a way that something that Baal would be happy about and would respond to them as how they, they saw it, a way to get his attention. I'm sure that you have seen images of savage tribes with their tattoos and their bones through their noses dancing around fire. They'll burn themselves and they'll even offer up human sacrifices. These are very ancient customs that they have. And then there is the disfigurement of the body, the stretching of the ears or the lips into grotesque shapes and things, flattening of the head like the flathead Indians put a board on the head when the children were little to make make their head flat. Uh, Various kinds of things that are done like this. I suppose it makes a lot of sense that false gods who oppose the true God who made us would want to deface the image of God. They resent the fact that man is is created by God and want to attack his work. But what a remarkable thing it is that our human rebellion goes so deep that we will actually mangle and disfigure our own bodies, that we enter into the spirit of that so so strongly that we express our unhappiness just in it to express our unhappiness with God. When people rebel against God, they will actually attack their own body as the image of God and disfigure it. God strictly forbids his people to engage in these practices. They have to do with mutilation of the body and with a fascination with death. When pagan cultures turned to God, they turn from these grotesque practices I've heard sometimes where they would be surprised when they saw a culture taking up these practices when they had become Christians and were were marveling at, why would you do this? This is what we did before we knew God. But as our society turns away from the Lord, we see a, a tremendous increase in these things. Tattoo parlors are everywhere. There are bizarre piercings and haircuts and disfigurement. Uh, there are those who place inserts under their skin to disfigure the shape of their faces, maybe to make a series of bumps across their forehead or on, around the top of their head or something, or who get their teeth ground down to, to make fangs and, and things like that, or burn their skin to raise welts on it, um, get their tongues forked, uh, all sorts of things that you see. And the cutting there's a huge rise in that sort of thing, lacerating one's body to, to watch and feel the blood uh, coming out to, for an emotional release. It's a very, very common thing. Um, different studies come to different conclusions about the exact figures, but something like 25% of teens self-injure in this way. 25%, one in four. That's quite a lot. Usually it is because their lives are so empty and meaningless that they want to feel something. And this is a way that they can engage in that. They were even having a problem a few years ago at the, um, at, at the Christian school in town with kids that were, were cutting themselves in this way. Our hearts ought to be broken to see so many lost and without purpose. We should reach out to them with Christian love to try to win them. But we should also see that these things have no place in the lives of God's people, of a believer. The Lord prohibits the defacing of our own body and of the body of others. Your body is not your own. 
as those who do such things assert. They say, it's my body, I can do what I want. But it is the Lord's. This is especially all the more true of us as believers. It's true of anyone that's created by God, but even more with believers because we've been bought with a price. We've been redeemed and bought back by the blood of Jesus Christ. When pagans turn to Christ, as I said before, they abandon these practices. We're God's workmanship. If you enjoy or, or, or if you destroy the work of an artist, it shows your contempt for that artist. A little kid who envies his brother or who's bitter toward his brother, will uh, his big brother, he'll destroy the model car that his brother spent hours building just because he hates his brother. And it's something that he made. So he hates the thing that he made and wants to destroy it. You know how there's even sometimes a desire that uh, just to tear down something that somebody else has made or built. Bitterness toward God often, often brings about self-destructive behavior. The bitterness is so deep that people mutilate themselves. Additionally, it is an attack on God's image like if itself. If you, if you hate a dictator, then you destroy and deface images of him. You tear up his picture or you knock down statues of him. People, you see that all the time when a dictator has been taken down, then everybody will go and start mangling, beating up on the statue. Remember how people burned pictures of Trump when he was the president. You saw that sort of thing. This is what people do when they deface their bodies and the bodies of others. They're attacking the image of God. It's a way to strike at God who is otherwise out of reach to us. That's why they mutilated Jesus on the cross because he was the exact image of God who came here to reveal the glory of God to us. Again, the resentment in this case is so deep, though, that people will even deface their own body. What drives them? What drives them to do that? Why would you tear up your body? I would not, I would not say that everyone who defaces their body has contempt for God, though, Many unwittingly join cultural practices that have, that have arisen for this reason, and that way they're participating in things that, that are against God. But in any case, it shows an improper regard for the body that God made. Life becomes cheap in a culture that rejects their creator. So defacing or mutilating the body is just part of the expression of that rejection of God. Now let's turn to another subject related to how we treat our bodies. Take heed how you present your body. You are the image of God. First, beware of getting so caught up with trends of what is beautiful that you actually abuse your body. You know, with beauty, so-called beauty enhancements and things like that. Let me begin with extreme examples because it's sometimes easier for us to see the absurdity of these practices when we look at a different culture from our own in a different time. The women in the Kayan culture of, of Thailand were known for wearing neck rings that push their shoulders down and push their head up and give them the appearance of having, well, it does give them a very long stretched out neck they would add more and more rings and keep trying to get their neck longer and longer and many times they so destroyed themselves that if they took the rings off then they couldn't even hold their head up their head would, would fall off they had to wear the rings to keep it up and of course it causes all kinds of problems to their uh, to, to their neck in in various ways this is extreme fashion and in japan not too long ago Small feet were very fashionable, so much so that Japanese girls, when they were little girls, the rich girls, the ones that didn't have to work for a living, they would wrap their feet up when their mothers would, I guess, when they were really little, really, really tight so the foot couldn't grow. And then they would have very small feet. And this was supposed to be more attractive than big feet. And they even did this to the extent that they couldn't even walk. Like they were crippled and had to be carried about or, or you know, they hobble along. They, they weren't able. Again, why? Well, because it was fashionable to have little feet. So you can see how extreme things can get. Now let's bring it a little closer to home. The popular look today is often thinness. It, it varies these days, but 
photos of supermodels are often, who are already very thin are often stretched out to make them look even thinner. And everybody wants to get that look that they see in the magazines. And young women who want to get that look starve themselves and become anorexic. Dangerous diets are used to burn fat off. Health is destroyed to capture a look. People even die from their efforts to get the appearance that they want. We could speak of many other practices as well. Large breasts are considered to be so important that silicone breast implants are used to, despite the known health risks that are associated with them. Obsessive attempts are made to eliminate wrinkles through facelifts, even when the skin is harmed so that the face doesn't even hardly function properly. Uh, Steroids are used to get muscle mass in men. There have been problems with young women destroying their bodies by the use of shapewear, trying to get just the right look with um, sometimes cutting off their circulation or destroying their, uh, their proper growth that they would, they would have, sort of like the Japanese girls with their feet. Uh, this kind of thing has been a real problem. The Bible instructs you not to put so much emphasis on these things. What does the Bible tell a woman, for example, that she ought to to focus on? Well, in 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, it says that they should adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for a woman professing godliness with good works. So a Christian woman, it doesn't mean that you can't wear any jewelry or you can't braid your hair, but... This is not your focus in life. Just get your hair just right, get your jewelry just right, to get all, all these things. Christian woman's main focus should be on good works instead of on beauty enhancement. Clearly, when health and finances are compromised to obtain a certain look, beauty enhancement have gone too far. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that the Gentiles, unbelievers in other words, are the ones who are obsessed with what they wear and how they look, that sort of thing. So something to look out for. This passage does not speak directly of, this passage in 1 Timothy 2 does not speak directly of contempt for the body, but when a person goes so far to, as to damage their body in trying to obtain some kind of, attain some kind of beauty thing, there's clearly dissatisfaction with the body that God has given them. This is to despise God's workmanship and to break the sixth commandment. And ultimately, it's an expression of this sin. An ultimate expression of this sin is sex reassignment surgery, where you don't like what gender you are, and so you're going to mutilate your body to change your gender and do the hormone treatments and all of these things that are very, very destructive. It's true, of course, that beauty is often compromised because of the fall, the effects of the fall. There are genetic defects and abnormalities as well as marring due to injuries and sicknesses of various kinds that we can have, uh, scarring and these things. These are brought upon us under the providential hand of God, and you need to accept what God has given you in that way as well. Uh, Birth defects, injuries, genetic defects, whatever it might be, We accept that with humility and patience. Yet, there is nothing wrong in that case with procedures to correct some of these distortions if you can afford to do those or if they're available to you, even when they are only cosmetic. People say, oh, well, this isn't cosmetic. Well, you can do stuff just because it's cosmetic too. But the thing is, this is not your focus or what you live for or what is the most important. The most important thing, as we saw Paul say to Timothy, was with godliness, doing good works. But when, when these enhancements become an obsession so that even health is compromised to obtain them, or when they take precedence over godliness, it means you've gone too far. But there is the opposite problem too, isn't there? There's a problem of showing contempt for your body by letting yourself go. And you know what I mean by letting yourself go. You know, maybe it's uh, stuffing yourself with with potato chips and candy all day or not washing your hair for for three weeks or you crawl out of bed on bed sheets that have not been washed in who knows how long and then you throw on a dirty old T-shirt with 
uh, ketchup stains all over that smells like a locker room. And then you go out in public <laughs> without combing your hair. Uh, there's an issue here. Um, remember that people have to look at you and they have to smell you and you are made in God's image. So there's a point where this becomes a problem too. Jesus rebukes hypocrites for going out without washing and anointing their head when they were fasting. He says, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. He is directly addressing hypocrisy there, but he's also telling them to make themselves presentable when they go out. Don't draw attention to yourself in this opposite way. You can draw attention by getting all gussied up and being all focused on that, or you can go in the opposite way. They were fasting, so you know what is the excuse that you have for to, if you're doing that, living that way? Ecclesiastes 9.8 says, Let your garments always be white, and let your head lack no oil. So, interesting stuff. You are God's workmanship. You are made in the image of God. The fall may have taken a toll on your appearance, but it's still for you to be thankful and do what you can to make yourself presentable. You don't have to be a beauty queen or a prince charming, but you ought to do what you can to honor your body, God's workmanship. Do not clothe the image of God in rags when you can afford something better. If you can't afford anything better, then that's fine. Of course, we must be careful about judging one another in all of these matters. It's very easy to criticize your brothers and sisters for that person cares too much about the way they look or that person doesn't care enough about the way they look. God has not made us all the same and we are not to make specific rules that one must do this always or always ne or never do that. That's not the thing that we're talking about here. We have different jobs. We have different incomes, different preferences, but we, made to, we need to make sure that we're living for the glory of God and not for self-indulgence in the hatred or, this, or in the hatred of our bodies. Each of you must examine the way that you present yourself. Do, not, do you present yourself the way you ought to as the image of God? according to your calling and according to your ability. Now let's move on to a third way that we're to honor our physical bodies. You're to take care of your health. Once again, we can find two extremes that both show contempt for the body. There are those who destroy their health by refusing to take care of their bodies. And there are those who are so obsessed about having perfect health that they refuse to enjoy the good gifts of God or refuse to serve their neighbor because they're so focused on being healthy. There are obvious ways that we can wrongfully endanger our health. <laughs> this is an illustration I've used before when I was uh, going up to uh, Cape Breton one time for a presbytery meeting. We stopped outside of the Chicken Lickin' <laughs> Cape Breton. Have you, know, you ever seen that place? And uh, I remember I was there, I'd already had lunch, and so I was, I was just sitting while some other guys were getting some stuff there, and I was watching a number of men with their, their big fat bellies, you know, they were going in and they're, they're gorging out on poutine, you know, just a big old huge plate, and then they come out and they're smoking away on their cigarette, and you know, they look like heart attacks, there were heart attacks waiting to happen, you know, it was basically a, uh, just, just a, an abandonment that way. They looked like they were doing everything they could to have high blood pressure and, and heart attack. The Bible condemns what is gluttony and excess. Proverbs twenty five sixteen says, Have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be filled with it and vomit. Very graphic way of saying, make you sick. Proverbs twenty three twenty warns you, Do not mix with wine bibbers or with gluttonous eaters of meat doesn't mean that you should not ever reach out to them when it says don't mix with them, but don't participate with them in those things because it's, uh, it's a kind of a rebellion against God. Drunkenness, of course, is often associated with gluttony, and it is clearly a violation of the will of God. In Ephesians 5.18, we're told, And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The body made in the image of God is meant to be filled with the Spirit, not filled with wine for drunkenness. 
It's a defilement of the image of God to become inebriated or high. And, and this is why God forbids this. It's an attack on the brain, really. You are to be at all times under the influence of the Holy Spirit rather than under the influence of mind-altering substances. What is more, and in direct relationship to the Sixth Commandment, major health problems are associated with the abuse of alcohol and drugs. Proverbs 23, 29-32 gives a strong warning about injury and addiction. It says, Proverbs 23:29, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. It goes on to mention that injury and addiction often result. Proverbs 23, 34 says, Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, or like one who lies at the top of the mast, saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, and I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? This sort of thing is not compatible with Christian discipleship. Um, some, some of us have scars from, from days of drunkenness when we got injured because we were so didn't know what we were doing. You must also refrain from health-destroying excesses of passion. This is an interesting thing to think about. We have more control over our passions than what we claim. We like to say that we don't have any control, but we do. You'll see somebody in a big rage and you know, you know, yelling completely out of control, and then the phone rings, and it's a call they want to get, and they pick it up. Oh, hi, how are you? Oh, yeah, yeah, everything's fine, yeah. And they talk, and then they hang the phone. Like, what happened? They were not out of control. They were expressing their rage. Yeah, they were out of control, but they weren't really out of control. See, we have to be careful with this. So bitterness, envy, excessive, uncontrolled anger, fear, anxiety, grief, and most of all, guilt from unconfessed sin can make you sick. All of these, including fear, are sinful in themselves if they're not dealt with properly. They show a lack of trust in God. But they are also very destructive to your health. So they're sinful in themselves, but also violations of the sixth commandment because they destroy your health. I don't think we realize how much that these contribute to everything from cancer to heart disease. What, they did studies with comorbidities. I mentioned not long ago with COVID, they had a year-long study on that. And uh, one of the biggest comorbidities was obesity. And the second biggest one, if I remember, it was right up there anyway, was anxiety. So carrying along these being anxious. The Bible says be anxious for nothing. It takes a toll on one's body. And of course, that's been known for a long time anyway, although it's not often talked about. Uh, very destructive to your health. Proverbs 17.22 says, A merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. So we need to do like David and encourage ourselves in the Lord instead of going on and harboring these kind of passions and things within. David speaks of the physical effects of guilt from unconfessed sin in Psalm 32, 3 and 4. He says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. It took a toll on him. I should also mention sexual immorality as destructive of health. This is a sin. Sexual sin is a sin that God has chosen to visit directly, immediately, with physical ramification, with disease. It's very interesting. We have sexually transmitted disease. And it's a well-known fact that many sexually, disease, sexually transmitted diseases 
are spread only by illicit sexual behavior. In other words, if there's godly marriage with one spouse, then you don't have sexually transmitted diseases. People go, oh, oh, I heard somebody caught, whatever. Yeah, sure, weird things can happen. But there's sexually transmitted diseases. They happen almost all the time through immorality. In Ephesians 5, 6, very interesting verse. The Lord declares that this is a particular sin that he visits with his wrath. He visits it now in this life. Proverbs kind of indicates that too when it talks about adultery. There are also unnatural sexual practices that use parts of the body in ways that it was not created to be used. These also can cause much disease. We're so obsessed today with the desire to have the ultimate sexual experience that we don't even think about whether what we're doing pleases the Lord or is using our body in the right way. He gave us sexual pleasure, but we abuse his gifts and harm our bodies when we misuse this. Once again, endangerment of health is, no, is certainly not the only reason to avoid illicit sexual behavior. We're going to be talking about the seventh commandment next time. And it's a direct violation, illicit sex is a direct violation of the seventh commandment, but it is in a secondary way damaging to our body and to our health. Sexual immorality is expressly forbidden in the seventh, but known risk to health makes it a violation. Promiscuity puts you and others at risk. A lot of people don't know this, but studies have consistently found that the median age of death for homosexual men is about 50 years old. It usually comes out to about 50 years old. In other words, lifespan by, by illicit uh, uh, homosexual behavior, by homosexual behavior, it shortens life by 20 to 30 years. Multiple studies found that. There is a... Okay, so this is, this is something destructive to the body. There is also a spiritual version of bodily abuse that I want to go to now. Throughout the history of the church, there have been those who sought to be more spiritual by depriving their body of food, by exposing it to the elements, by keeping long vid- vigils, and even by beating or mutilating their body to keep it under. You may have heard of the pillar saints, Guys that would get out in the elements and cold weather, rainy weather, everything, just sit on a pillar, on the top of a pillar for you know days and days, sitting there trying to get close to God this way by denying themselves uh, of things. Pagan religions are the ones that started that. And they will engage in such practices. But there's no call for this from Scripture. In fact, the Scripture forbids that kind of a thing. In Colossians 2.23, we're given God's thoughts about it says, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom, an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, these things don't help you conquer sin. They, in fact, they make your sin worse. They just make a show. There's a place for fasting where we humble ourselves and afflict our souls that we may devote our full attention to the Lord. But the purpose of fasting is not to neglect the body. That's not the purpose in itself of fasting, but it's rather to devote our attention away from our normal eating and such things that we may seek the Lord. Destroying your health, though, is not something that honors the Lord. If you have a proper regard for the body as the image of God, then you will seek to preserve the life and health of yourselves and others. So the next thing that you want to look at here, this involves providing those things that are needful for the body. Okay, you're looking to do what you can to preserve health and life. In Matthew 25, we're told that in the judgment at the last day, this is the passage that Ray read earlier, that in the judgment at the last day, Jesus will commend those who provided food for the hungry, drink for the thirsty, clothes for the naked, and care for the sick. The godly woman, described in Proverbs, is the one who looks well to the ways of her own household. Proverbs 31, 14, she's like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. 
As much as we are able, we are to provide nutritious meals and things needed for the body, for ourselves and for others. Seeking to preserve life also means that you will get appropriate medical care and you'll pray for healing when you and others are sick or injured. It is very interesting and instructive to see that when Hezekiah was sick, he prayed and the Lord told him through Isaiah, the prophet, that God would heal him. But in doing so, he actually instructed Hezekiah to apply a medical remedy, a poultice such as was used in that day. And some people use them today to good effect. Isaiah 38, 21 says, now as Isaiah had said, let them take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on the boil and he shall recover. So it was a method of drawing out the poison into the poultice. Um, you, you can do that. I've done that before. If I had a I had a place that was in my mouth that was infected and put a little garlic clove up there and it drew out the infection. It, uh, this sort of thing. Uh, of course, there's medicines we have that we can take, but there's, uh, this is a kind of medicine that's been around for a really long time. Jesus commends the Samaritan in his parable for treating the wounds of the man that had been beaten on left on the side of the road to die. Luke 10, 34 says, So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The refusal of the priest and the Levite that walked by is condemned in that, um, in that story. We also have Paul's advice to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 5.23, where he says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. It was the common thing in those days, the common table drink, was wine that was mixed with water or water mixed with wine. They put a bit of wine, as he says, use a little wine for your stomach. They put it in there to, to purify the water and to, to make it so that you wouldn't get sick. For some reason, Timothy was drinking only water. And Paul said, no, no, use a little wine so that, so that you'll, you'll get better to promote good health. Maybe he was trying to save money. I don't know what his reason was. We may extend Paul's advice to Timothy to say that it is right for us to do those things that will promote good health. It is known that certain foods are just if, if it is known that certain foods are destroying of health or of our health, maybe we're allergic to something and it's right for us to refrain. And if it's known that others will enhance our health, then we should make use of them. The same is true of exercise. We live in a time when many people don't get very much exercise it's known to compromise our health. So if we're the image of God, and we are, we need to take care of ourselves. Maybe we could walk instead of driving somewhere or, or whatever. But there is an idolatrous obsession with health as well. All these things have double edges, don't they? People are, become idolatrously obsessed with being healthy. There are those who suppose that by eating the right foods and by getting the right exercise, they will be able to preserve their health. We must rather be humble I think it's kind of ironic that, you know, there's different ones. I won't necessarily use names here, but people that wrote books about, you know, how, how to have the, a healthy heart. And this is absolutely work that died of heart attacks. You know, there's, it's, it, God does this sort of thing. We, we get all obsessed with something. We live in a fallen world and no matter what we do, there will be sickness and there will be death at last. When you get all caught up with this, it can be a big distraction, to, pursue, to the pursuit of godliness, just like a beauty enhancement can be. Time and money can be wasted, keeping you from prayer, keeping you from service to others. All you're thinking about is being healthy, getting the exercise, doing the, getting everything just right. Besides, you can get so worked up about your health that you, you, you can also get so worked up about your health that you don't even enjoy your food anymore. <laughs> And that's a, a, a wrong situation too. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5 that God has given us food and the marriage bed to enjoy and that we're to give thanks for these things. Some, uh, Timothy knew, some people Timothy knew were calling for restrictions from such things. And Paul, remember what he called it? He said it was a doctrine of demons to forbid foods that God has given us to enjoy or sexual relations properly used in marriage. 
The devil does not want you to enjoy the good things that God has given us. He wants you to feel bad about, you know, eating steak or or eating candy or eating you know various things. Uh, like I said before, if you're stuffing your face all day with potato chips and stuff like that, it's a problem. But we're to enjoy. Wine is given according to Psalm 104:15, not to make us drunk or to give us escape, but to make our hearts glad before him. There's a right use of it. I believe that we have seen an obsession with health in fighting COVID-19. People have refused or been forbidden to care for the sick or elderly relations in the effort to keep them from getting infected. Healthy people are looked at as infectious and are forbidden to gather at church or to gather as families around the, the Thanksgiving table. Here we are coming up on Thanksgiving. For many elderly people, the life we are so eager to protect is no longer worth living. I've talked to elderly people who just are, say that they just, they just weep because they're all alone. During, during the lockdowns I'm talking about, uh, all alone, no one can visit, they don't visit anyone, just shut up and you'd rather be dead than alive. Why do you preserve life when life isn't even worth living? Not that we, of course, we should preserve life, but I'm saying we shouldn't make life so that it's not worth living either. That's an obsession with health. When you're grateful for God's gifts, you receive them with thanksgiving, but not with gluttonous excess. Proverbs 24, 13 says, My son, eat honey because it is good, and the honeycomb which is sweet to your taste. 25, 16 says, Have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be filled with it and vomit. That's the way to a godly and happy life. Do not make a God out of food and good health, but neither let food and neglect of health destroy your body either. And do I need to add again that we have to be careful about judging each other unjustly in these matters? It's very easy for us to fall into a wrong kind of judging. There are some who will focus more on preserving health, and there are some who will focus more on enjoyment of God's good gifts. We are not to judge one another with regard to food and drink so as to be divisive. You know, if somebody is more, more careful than I want to be, that, that's okay. About their health, if somebody is more careless, that's okay too. Only in cases of clear violation do we step in. We do not want to be like the Jews were who accused John the Baptist of having a demon because he abstained from many of the comforts of life and who at the same time accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard because he attended feasts and enjoyed wine. This is not to say that we're not to judge drunkards or, re or rebuke gluttons. We are. Paul includes drunkenness even in the list of those who, who, drunkards as those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right along with sexual immorality. He includes that together. So it is something we don't say we don't address this because we're being legalists if we address it in either direction. There, we are to address it. But we don't come down and make little petty rules in the middle of everything to try to divide people and say, oh, he had, uh, you're only allowed to have 16 potato chips or, you know, wh whatever it is. is we, we, can go, we can go way off on these kind of things. Okay, let's move along to the fourth thing that we need to consider about preserving life. We're to guard ourselves and others from unnecessary injury. Indeed, if we have respect for our bodies as the image of God, we will want to we, we will want to um, we will not want to expose ourselves or others to unnecessary dangers. The Old Testament shows that you are responsible if harm comes to your neighbor because of your carelessness or your neglect. In Exodus 21, 28 through 30, a distinction is made between injury that comes through innocence, where the person that contributed to the, in the injury was innocent, and injury that comes on account of the person who contributed to the injury's self-neglect, or sinful neglect, I should say, not self-neglect, sinful neglect. Um, it says, listen to the passage, Exodus 21, 28, 
If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. In other words, he won't be charged because this ox, you know, he, he didn't know it would harm anyone and it did. And the ox, he loses his ox, but he doesn't get punished. But here's the distinction where the guy was innocent with the ox injuring someone. Here's where he is not innocent when his ox injures someone. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past and it has been made known to his owner and he has not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life whatever is imposed on him. So this is saying the fellow actually deserves to die for this because he knew that this was a hazard and he didn't contain it. So he deserves to die for this, although a fine can be imposed instead. He can redeem his life by paying a fine. So this is something to keep in mind when we talk about capital punishment and things like that. Sometimes that's the maximum extent, but sometimes there can be a modified lesser punishment that's given. But the thing is, he is accountable here for causing injury to his neighbor. You are not to be careless about things under your control that could potentially cause injury or death to your neighbor. This principle has a very, very wide application. We are to ensure that we have a safe work environment for the people who work for us. You need to make sure that you have a safe home for your children and for your guests. The Bible holds a man guilty if people are injured on his roof because he didn't put a rail up on his roof. They would socialize on their flat roofs. And if you didn't have a rail, somebody fell off and got injured, you were liable for that. You need to make sure that you have a safe vehicle and that you operate in a way that will not unnecessarily endanger your life or the life of others. If you're an electrician, don't be careless about the way you install a new panel in a house. There's thousands of applications that we could get into. Of course, there is, once again, unreasonable excess about this also. There are those who become so anxious about safety that it paralyzes them from serving God and others. They're always afraid of enemies, food shortages, of every possible thing that could go wrong. The Bible tells us, be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. Our Heavenly Father is, is looking after us and nothing can come upon us apart from His will. We are to trust Him as our refuge, not to suppose that we can make a safety net that will secure us so that nothing will ever get through that net. Here again, we must be careful about judging others. We cannot make rules that no one ought to race motorcycles or no one ought to ever bungee jump or try to climb Mount Everest. A lot of people died doing that. But we need to respect one another's decisions before the Lord about such things. But we must beware that we do not have an attitude of indifference about preserving life so that we are foolish or we're careless because we just don't care. And we can and ought to rebuke one another when we see negligence and such behavior as disregards the life and safety of ourselves or others. It is our duty to defend our neighbor from the harm that might have come to him on account of another's sinful negligence. So, my brothers and sisters, I have shown you today that we're called of God to take care of the bodies that he has given us. It's a way, it is the way of the pagan to have contempt for the body. It is the way of the Christian to honor the body and to take care of it. Jesus Christ has redeemed not only our souls, but also our bodies. In these bodies, we are to glorify God. If we are in Christ, it is these bodies that will be raised up and made immortal to serve God forever. Even as Jesus' body has already been raised up and made immortal. Let us show to God that we have great respect for what he has made and honor him by taking care of these bodies, 
not in an idolatrous way, but in a godly way that shows our trust in our dear Lord Jesus to whom our bodies are joined forever and ever. Our catechism teaches that even when we go to the grave, that our body is still joined to Jesus. We're still members of his body. Our spirit goes to be with the Lord and our body is in the grave and then it's cared for by him until it's raised up again and brought back together and, and raised up. So that is, our, that, that is what we're called to with regards to the sixth commandment. Please stand and let's call on the name of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your mercy to us in that you have taught us so many things from your word. Your word is so full of information for us about the sixth commandment. There's much more that could be said. But we thank you, Lord, for the guidance that we have, and we pray that we would apply it with wisdom. We know, Lord, that we live in times when people are overly anxious, as was mentioned in the sermon about... um, about protecting themselves and and whatnot. And we know that there are other times when people are overly careless and, and, and take risks that ought not to be taken. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, that we would be um, those who, who do what we do because we love you, who treat our body and other bodies the, the way that we treat them because, because we love you, because we love your image because we want life to be preserved and enhanced. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us from a spirit that would judge others unjustly or that would be excessive in our judgments, being too narrow and too, um, too fierce toward, toward other people in these things. We pray, Lord, though, that we would also have the boldness and the appropriate way, manner about us of speaking to those who are in transgression to warn them that they're pushing against God's commandment here to not murder. We pray, Lord, that we would, uh, that we would be able to live together as your people in harmony in these ways and that we would look for ways to help others. We read the passage in Matthew 25 that when someone's hungry or when they're thirsty or when they're in need of medical care, that we would endeavor to minister to them as we are able, as we have opportunity or see that they get ministry that they need, health care that they need. Father, help us with our eating and so on to have control, to enjoy the good things that you have given us in this life, but also to exercise care that we don't abuse them, for then we will not enjoy them anyway. So we pray these things, Lord, for we desire to, to honor you and to give glory to you, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do to do all to the glory of God. And we need your help and grace to do that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.